According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 8. We're going to cover three verses. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. This is episode 23 in the Galilean ministry. The heading for which is simply labeled Another Tour of Galilee. There were several such tours. There are some unique details to this one, though, that we'll spend some time observing and uh, and learning from. And uh, hopefully we will be edified through that process. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that each one of us is equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege and blessing we have today to assemble together and to receive instruction. We thank you for the freedom our nation continues to enjoy and the opportunity we have uh, on a bright, sunny day and on a Wednesday morning such as this, Father. We're not uh, cowered down in, in bomb shelters anywhere with our family. And we think about what uh, what our brothers and sisters are going through in Israel and Lebanon right now. And Father, we just thank you for your ongoing protection, your ongoing provision for your grace, eternal plan, for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. We ask now that you bless our study, that you would set aside distractions, give us concentration. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Turn my ringer off. Last week I tempted fate both on Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening. So not to put the Lord my God to the test, I'm going to turn off my cell phone this morning. All right. Another tour of Galilee. We, uh, we wrapped up this sinful woman saved by grace through faith in uh, Luke chapter 7. As the chapter concludes, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Of course, faith being the mechanism by which God's plan has designed for the uh, atonement to be applied on an individual basis. Uh, we realize that it's the finished work of Jesus Christ that has saved her, but we don't take issue with the statement there in verse 50. Her faith has indeed saved her by virtue of being the mechanism that uh, applies that salvation to her account. Moving on, though, this morning to chapter 8, soon afterwards, soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and teaching the kingdom, uh, I'm sorry, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna. And many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. All right, that's it. In the entirety, those are the verses that we look at in the context of this episode. Some observations to make here as he proclaims and preaches. Proclaiming and preaching. I like the P's in that verse. In fact, it went a little wild with P's in this uh, study. But the alliteration there helps us to remember proclaiming and preaching and what it's all about. What are we called to do? What is our role? Well, we're imitators of Christ. What was his role? And so some of this will come into application for us as well. 
All right, three verses, seven observations we want to make about this. This stage, for, so point one in your outline, this stage of the Lord's ministry. I'm going to teach you a new word. It's a word I just learned uh, a couple weeks back. This stage of the Lord's ministry featured a pricey peregrination. Any idea what a peregrination is? It does relate to the peregrine falcon, by the way, I should point out. The term peregrinate, it means walking about here and there, (laughs) wandering, meandering. It means that you are walking about everywhere. That's peregrination. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Walking, for instance, uh, as we examined 40 different homes or 37 different homes in our shopping last fall, uh, we peregrinated throughout a number of homes. That is, we walked about everywhere. We perused the bedrooms. We perused the living area. We perused the garage, inside, outside, kitchen area, uh, study or lack thereof. We walked everywhere we could in every house we had the opportunity to. That's uh, what's taking place here. It's the opposite of what I like to do. For example, if I'm going into a Walmart and I'm looking for replacement cutter blades for my electric razor, then I am going to proceed in the front door and I'm going to proceed directly to where I suspect the uh, the uh, hygiene type products are going to be found and I find the aisle I'm looking for and I find the cutter blades, either identifying that they have them there or they don't have them there. And then when I've accomplished my mission, it is proceeding directly to the checkout lane and out the door. In and out in a very rapid fire commando style Raid. Others, however, would uh, prefer to peregrinate. They would prefer to mosey to, yes, they've got something in mind, but they've got two or three other things in mind. And while they're at it, they might as well just kind of browse and see what's on sale or how they've arranged the shelves or various other meanderings that evidently testifies to the fact that their lives are so... um, All right, I'll be careful. You obviously have so much time on your hands that you can roam and mosey and look and so forth. And I envy your luxurious um, lifestyle that has such ease that you have nowhere else to be at the moment. Well, now the Lord is doing this, and he is wandering, he is roaming, he is traveling, and he is very thorough in where he travels. Every city, every village. And that's a lot. Just in the Galilean uh, region, that's a lot. And not all of those cities and villages are Jewish cities and villages. There were tremendous Gentile cities and villages as well. Greek villages, Roman villages, and so forth. We'll give you vocabulary on this, but it is um, not a quick process. I mean, stop to consider all the towns just simply in Travis County beyond Austin, and you stop to consider, okay, I'm going to have to hit Pflugerville, I'm going to have to hit Wells Branch, I'm going to have to hit Del Valley, I'm going to have to hit um, Sunset Valley, and, and all these other towns we don't even think about, Rollingwood and Westlake, and towns that we think, now, does that really count as a town? You know, is Jollyville still a town, or is that then, well, it's been swallowed up, unlimited purpose annexation, 
uh, never was incorporated, but it would be a village, so to speak. If we're going to draw a distinction between a polis and a come, which we'll give you vocabulary on that, he's hitting not only the cities, but also the small villages, which means not only does he hit Austin, but he hits Del Valley and Pflugerville and, and Rollingwood and these other uh, places on the map. And not only does that take time, but it takes money because you need food in all the days that it's taking to travel these places. You need a place to stay and uh, all of the expenses involved with traveling. Plus, it's not just the Lord. The twelve are with him. And so feeding that unruly bunch uh, becomes a, uh, a fee. And then these women that are traveling with him as well. So there's a lot of expense that goes to maintaining this kind of itinerant missionary type work. And we'll uh, discuss that here in a moment. So it's expensive. That's why I called it pricey. A pricey peregrination. Now secondly, the, the verb on this. There's one verb in this text that's dealing with this. And that verb is going around. So I'll give that to you under point two. Duo Dio duo, D-I-O, that is Delta Iota Omicron, then Delta Iota Upsilon Omega, Dio Duo. We just want to give it the English letters D-I-O-D-E-U-O. Right there. Dia or Dio, Dia Duo. And... Highlighting on the dia here, when we think about a diameter, what's the diameter of a circle? Well, it's that line. No, that's perimeter. Perimeter or circumference as you're going around the outside of a circle, right? But the diameter is a line. Geometry students, Ethan, what's the diameter? Straight line through from one edge directly through the center. And across to the opposite edge, if you're dealing with a true circle and a true diameter. That's right. So, if you think of the Dio in the sense of diameter, and uh, he's traveling through the land. But he's traveling thoroughly through the land. So, how many diameters are there on a circle? Could be lots of them. That's right. Could be, you could start at the top at 12 o'clock, go down to 6 o'clock. You could start at... 1 o'clock and go down to 7 o'clock. You could start at 3 o'clock, go over to 9 o'clock. All right? Actually, there's an infinite number if you stop to think about it. If there's 360 degrees in, around in a circle, or then, of course, you can subdivide those at any point. The uh, emphasis here, though, is on the thoroughness of the traveling. He's not passing by a land. He is traveling thoroughly through a land. I can say that I've been... We could all say that we've been through places, but have we truly been through them? See, I've flown through London, but what have I seen? I wasn't allowed. There was a heightened security alert. Uh, the Lockerbie Scotland bombing had gone off the day before. And so, uh, needless to say, all the airport procedures were very um, uh, hyperactive on that particular day. It must have been 1989 or so uh, when that had happened. So... I can say that I traveled through London, but what did I really see? I saw one terminal of Heathrow Airport for six hours. Boring, let me tell you. The only advantage was was that they spoke a language similar to English, and so you could at least communicate with the people who were there. I bought a muffin. 
I thought this is my chance for an English muffin. And I was sadly, sadly disappointed. It just seemed like a normal muffin to me. Now, the verb. The verb only occurs twice in the New Testament, uh, both by the same author, Luke. Uh, here in Acts, I mean, in Luke 8.1 is where he uses it here, but also in Acts 17.1. So we can look at it there just for a short comparative look uh, for a verb that only is twice in the New Testament. Same author uses it in both places. But it's interesting in the context of Acts 17, Paul's uh, second missionary journey, and he's got uh, Silvanus with him and Timothy. And it says, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica and there was a synagogue of the Jews. So this was their ministry in between Philippi, where they were jailed and and brought that jailer to Christ and, and had ministry there. In between Philippi and Thessalonica, there were these regions, Amphipolis and, Apoll- and Apollonia, two separate regions. They passed through, thoroughly through them both. But they came then to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then it goes on to describe it. All right. The uses, though, in the Old Testament are much more significant. Twenty times that this verb occurs in the Septuagint Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And I thought on three of them, it was very, actually on two of them, it was very worthwhile examining. So join me in Genesis 12 and we'll see the first such use of it. And this, this highlights a bit. This highlights a bit here. Genesis chapter 12. And you wonder why was the Lord being so thorough in his uh, ministry? Genesis chapter 12. We're, we're familiar with this text. The context of this is the call of Abraham, the, the initial giving of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant actually is given in five or six different elements, different parts between here and, and chapter 25. But here is uh, the first introduction to the Abrahamic covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And so shall and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We've taught this passage many times and the primary responsibility that a Gentile nation would have in the uh, establishment outworking of God's plan would be to provide a blessing to the Jewish people. And uh, so far as we have a domestic policy that blesses the Jewish uh, uh, citizens of our nation, we line ourselves up for blessing. So long as we have a foreign policy that blesses the Jewish people in various countries around the world, we will line our nation up for blessing the pattern being there now abram went forth as the lord had spoken to him and lot went with him interesting aspect he's supposed to leave his family why is lot going with him we come to find out though lot's a believer we come to find out that uh, he has a righteous soul uh, he was a bit of a worldly believer from later chapters we know he lived in sodom and and his righteous soul, it says, was vexed day by day. Didn't vex him enough to get out of Sodom. But he was still, he was a believer. And there's a pattern there that we want to learn from. He's leaving his country. He's leaving his relatives. He's leaving his family. But Lot chooses to also make such departures by virtue of his uh, being a believer and by virtue of his identifying with Abraham. 
All right. Other things I could illustrate there, but for the purposes of this morning, I will move on. I'm headed for verse 6. So Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Uh, Thus they came to the land of Canaan. So there's a stop in Haran along the way there in verse 4, where eventually they leave Terah, and then they proceed down into Canaan. Finally, verse 6, Abram passed through the land. This is our duo, the verb study that we're looking at. He passed through the land. He's examining the land. This is the land that God had promised him. And he passes through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. So the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he's got this opportunity. But now notice, he then proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. And you see what Abraham's doing here is Abraham is traveling through the land. Touring the grant, the land grant that is being promised to Abraham. Next chapter over in chapter 13, verse 17. Just in case uh, some false teacher comes along and tries to confuse you with some issue to say, oh, that wasn't literal land. Uh, you know, the, we need to allegorize the passage, and it was a spiritual thing, and Abraham was looking forward to heaven, and blah, 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 blah. That's a falsehood. All right. Verse 17. Arise. Well, first of all, verse 14, after he separates from Lot. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. And those would be your earthly eyes looking around. And uh, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. This is physical geography that he can physically see from where he is. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Notice, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Abraham is the first recipient of this promise. This is uh, part of why we examine the fact that he is the God of the living, not the dead, that the resurrection is necessary for Abraham to receive in totality this land grant because he never received it in totality during his hundred and plus year earthly life. Hundred and what did Abraham live? Hundred and seventy five year earthly life. Um, But those are physical descendants in a physical land. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. See, now this is the pattern. Now, Abraham is the first to do this as he surveys the land grant, but this is exactly what Jesus is doing when we examine him now in Luke chapter 8 with his disciples, with these women. He is traveling through the land. He is surveying, as it were, the land of promise, the land grant that is his. His specifically as not only a son of Abraham, but a son of David, the son of David, the one to whom this land is going to be subject as he rules on that throne. So arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. All right. 
Anyway, there's a pattern there. The uh, nature of it. I was trying to remember a story just a moment ago. It jogged my memory of a... Oh, it's escaping me, so I'll let that go. I was reading something last week about a boundary, and, and the boundary was agreed upon from a particular point, and it was one day's... I believe it was in the settling of the American, uh, uh, in the, uh, it was in the settling of the Virginia colony. And they had agreed that the boundary, maybe it was Pennsylvania, but they had agreed that the boundary would be uh, one day's travel by foot from a particular starting point. And having agreed to that, I believe it was with, yes it was, it was a treaty with one of the Indian tribes, Native American tribes. And uh, having signed the treaty then, but previously, though, the, they had gotten and trained the three fastest runners they could who had trained and trained and trained for weeks and weeks to be able to cover as much ground by foot as they could in a 24-hour period. And it was amazing. You know, the Indians thought they were giving up a certain limited part of land based on what they thought you could travel in a day. Well, we had worked out with these three runners, and, and man, they did it. And they ran, I forget the distance that they ran in a 24-hour period on foot, because that was the treaty. And uh, amazing story there. Well, so that was a kind of a shady illustration of what we're looking at here. Abraham has a legitimate purpose for walking around because he's not wheeling and dealing and bargaining with any native tribes for this land. He's encountering Canaanites everywhere he goes, godless Canaanites. But he knows God is the one that's promising him this land. So he's relaxed about it. He even pays cash for a cave that he, that he owns anyway. You think about that? When it comes time to bury Sarah, he pays cash. Why? Because God hasn't given it to him yet. He's still an alien and a sojourner waiting expectantly for the promise. Tremendous faith of Abraham. All right, the last uh, passage I'll give you on this, it's one for a further context, although the verb uh, diaduo does not occur here in this text. Still, the principle is there, and I think it gives us added context in Numbers 13, verse 17, and verse 24. Numbers 13, 17 should be through 24. Not just 220. Uh, something happened to my hyphen. I've got a stolen hyphen. Verses 17 through 24. Moses sent them, that is the twelve spies, one from each tribe, to spy out the land of Canaan. He said to them, go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob as, uh, at uh, Libo Hamath. When they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. Now these are three giants. They're Nephilim giants. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. And the place, uh, that place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. So they do this. It takes them 40 days to do this. They return from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. And they say, well, we've got good news, we've got bad news. 
The good news is, look at this big cluster of grapes. The land is exceedingly fruitful, and that's the good news. The bad news is, there's giants in the land, and we can't take it. We can't take it. See, that's their lack of faith. Caleb and Joshua being the exceptions, they realize that God, that they're not taking, God is giving. And it's a wonderful picture. God gives on his end of things, that's sovereignty. Caleb and Joshua, though, are responding in faith. It's a wonderful picture. God gives, they receive. And uh, Caleb quieted the people before Moses in verse 30 and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Why did he have such faith? Because it was the promise of God to provide, the promise of God to give. Well, only Caleb and Joshua had such um, faith. The others were terrified. It says that uh, in verse 32, that uh, it's a land that devours its inhabitants, that all the people in whom we saw it are men of great size. There uh, also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, so that we were in, and so we were in their sight. Anyway, this gives us the flavor for what the Lord was doing as we return back now to Luke chapter 8, passing through the land. Passing through the land. And I guess you could make a case that he was just simply um, traversing it in a rapid format, but I think the context indicates that he was thoroughly touring it in a more slow and deliberate context. Uh, context and for that we go to the third uh, observation in this text from city to village the phrase from city to village tells us that he wasn't just crossing over but he was actually traveling through throughout and i would rather use the term throughout to give us the more uh, comprehensive um, description of it from city to village, katapalin kaikomain, it says. From city to village. We have an idiom here that we want to deal with. This is a case where it's not just the vocabulary that helps us. Kata as a preposition has thousands of uses in the New Testament. Or at least hundreds of uses. Uh, polis is a city. Common term. It's where we get politics. A polis is a city. Politics are the matters that pertain to the governance of a city or an organized group of people. A kome is a village. There's nothing weird about the vocabulary. It's standard terms. But it's the idiom that's employed. It's using the preposition kata with the accusative of these other nouns. That's what stands out. Specifically, we've got a preposition with the accusative marker of spatial aspect. That is... Uh, kata could be because or according to, or it could be, if it's directional, it could be down in, uh, in one sense. But here we're examining places that are viewed serially. That is, you can't be everywhere at the same time. If you're going to go from Round Rock to Pflugerville to Wells Branch to Jollyville to Austin to, uh, oh, I forgot, uh, Anderson Mill, all right, to Austin to... Rollingwood to Westlake to back around, hook around the other side, come back through Sunset Valley and a bunch of other towns. Eventually work your way over to Del Valley. And when you've reached Garfield, let me tell you, when you're in Garfield, Texas, there's not a lot there except there's a Thai restaurant that gave me a horrible reaction one time. I'll never eat there again. 
All right. Said I never even heard of Garfield, Texas. Well, pay more attention to the signs when you're driving on Highway 71. Now, you can't be everywhere at the same time. But what you're doing is you're going from place to place to place to place to place. And so you're viewing them serially. And that's what this idiom represents. It's a preposition with an accusative marker of spatial aspect of places viewed serially. In other words, it's a distributive use of kata with the accusative. And so we've got the, the, the pattern X by X or from X to X, where your X's are the nouns that are used. In this case, the, noun, the X's are city and village. Sometimes it's from city to city. Sometimes it's from village to village. Sometimes it's from day to day. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, you could put anything in there. We do the same thing in English. If, uh, if, I'm call, if we have a prayer burden, uh, an emergency takes place, and we want to call people, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to call from house to house, right? Or from person to person, distributively or serially throughout the list. And so we have X by X or from X to X, and you can render it in different ways. And this is another idiom or another construction that's uh, rather common in Luke's writings, uh, significantly here in not just the Gospels, but the examples I set for you here are all in the book of Acts. So let's examine them here, and it, it shouldn't take too long. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. And while you're looking at Acts 2.46, we can spotlight verse 42. So we've got to decide, and in, you know, we can render this in English a number of different ways, you know, from and to, that's how I did it, from city to village. Or um, you can call it city by city or village by village, city by village. I think from city to village is the best way to deal with this because cities are big, villages are small. But he travels throughout the land from city to village, indicating that he's not limiting himself to the big population centers. He is exhaustively traveling everywhere he can find in Galilee. Acts 2.46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. That's our idiom there. Kata oikos, and be oikon in the accusative. Kata oikon, or kat oikon, kai oikon, from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, you can't eat in every house at the same time. See, this would be like uh, if, you know, um, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple. That's one gathering place where they can all come together. It's... Uh, I mean, stop to think how many Christians there are in Jerusalem at this point. Uh, 3,000 got uh, entered into the church on, on the day of Pentecost alone. And then thousands more after that. You stop to consider how many buildings are there in Jerusalem that can house that many people. So they tended to gather in a public place and where there was uh, a large enough space there for them to gather and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. Of course, that didn't render them very popular among the Jewish uh, religious authorities there that ran the operations in the temple. So then they go from house to house. And you're not going to put, uh, you can't just come home and say, oh, honey, we're having 3,000 for dinner tonight. So you break it down. And you go from house to house, and the apostles would travel around. So this would be like, uh, you know, we'd set up some kind of a schedule where 
uh, I used to pray uh, from Argiho to, um, uh, to Zook, back when the Zooks were a part of our congregation. Remember Jesse and Stephanie Zook? And we went from A to Z in my prayers. Well, now that's changed a bit. If you looked in the latest uh, directory, we've got Luke Zeller now as the last uh, entry in the, in the uh, Zs there in the directory. And, and that's just a way of praying. You don't have to pray alphabetically. I don't know that, uh, that there's anything sanctified about praying alphabetically, but it's just flipping through the pages and offering up the prayers. Well, you could set up something similar to that, and we have public meeting at Austin Bible Church, and then from house to house, you know, with fellowship time, dinners, meals, what have you. All right. I'm not hitting up dinner, dinner invitations. I'm just saying this is, what, this is what they did in Jerusalem. All right. Uh, also, by the way, in, before I flip back to chapter 5, you've got verse 42 there. It's on the front of every church bulletin. It's why we stress the things we stress. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All right? Breaking of bread there being communion. Those four activities. Why do we have Bible teaching at Austin Bible Church? Because it's in Acts 2.42. Why do we have communion service at Austin Bible Church? Because it's in Acts 2.42. Why do we have prayer meetings in Austin Bible Church? Because it's in Acts 2.42. And why do we have scheduled fellowship times, quarterly potlucks, monthly fellowship times? Because it's in Acts 2.42. All right? Why don't we have matchmaking services? Why don't we have uh, food drives? Why don't we have uh, home building things? And other things that churches get involved with. You know, we're not a lonely hearts club and other things. Colonel used to say that a lot. It's not in Acts 2.42. All right, so there's a, a pattern there for our ministry. All right, Acts 5.42, another use of this kata idiom. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ from house to house. See, that shows you the thorough nature of the teaching ministry. Likewise, 8.3, Luke 8, not Luke, Acts 8.3. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house. There's your idiom. Dragging off men and women, he would put them into prison. Shows you the thorough nature of it. All of these speak of the thoroughness. Acts 20.20, I love Acts He says in verse 18, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials. See, ministry is not all fun and games. Tears and trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was popular. Oh, no, wait, not popular. Profitable. Profitable. Sometimes a pastor has to teach what's unpopular because it's necessary. It's profitable. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Publicly and house to house. See, I've known pastors that would cringe at any uh, house to house type ministry. Well, they don't have the same conviction I have of Acts 20.20. Then they very dogmatically, just forcefully say, no, pulpit's all you need. Pulpit's all you need. That's where you're going to get taught. That's where you're going to get shepherded. You know, it's all going to come with your correction, your shepherding. It all takes place in the pulpit. I get convicted of this. No, it's publicly and from house to house. We've got a pulpit ministry, obviously. We do that five, six times a week. 
But then there's the house-to-house ministry. That's where the pastor gets with you or the deacons get with you and we pray in your home and we talk about your struggles and we, we uh, take it to the Lord and that's, that's very private. But that's part of the house-to-house ministry. Very thorough. Very thorough. Uh, the last one of these is Acts 22:19. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, that's the kata, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. So we see the thoroughness of it. And that's why when we have the idiom in Luke chapter 8, as he's traveling through, I think throughout Galilee from city to village, that it's thorough. And there are even three places where the idiom is so understood to be a thorough principle that the English translation even just calls it every. And it uses that in Acts 15.21, Acts 20.23, and Titus, one of Paul's uses. Titus 1.5. So Acts 15.21. Acts 15.21. I hope this isn't too tedious for you. It's only eight verses. How simple could this be? I looked up 1,423 uses of pas last week. A Greek adjective that means every. And it's used almost 1,400 times, And depending on what Greek manuscripts you're looking at. I saw them all. All right, Acts 15.21. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he has read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, the idiom there is from city to city, from Sabbath to Sabbath. But the idea is, because it's so thorough, because it's from city to city, it's every city. And you can bring the idiom across into English by simply recognizing every city. Another example is Acts 20.23. We were just there, weren't we? Acts 20.23. Just now bound in the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city. In other words, from city to city. Every stop along his way as he's traveling. He has the witness of the Holy Spirit telling him that bonds and affliction await me. Bonds and affliction await me. So he's traveling on his way to Jerusalem and he stops. Miletus was one of his stops. He had other stops along the way, uh, in the different coastal cities and locations on the coast of Asia there. Assos and, and Mytilene and Chios and Samos and so forth. Those are kind of fun word studies. They're kind of fun geography studies. He even cruised by the, uh, the Greek island of Lesbos where we get lesbian and other things. So see the kind of detailed geographic study you end up doing in this kind of stuff. But from city to city, in every city, in every city, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Finally, Titus 1.5. Peter's giving instructions, not Peter, Paul's giving instructions to Titus. For this reason I left you in Crete, in order that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders from city to city, in every city, as I directed you. In every city. As I directed you. So Jesus and his disciples are traveling throughout Galilee from city to village. In every city, in every village. This is an exhaustive uh, tour. 
If he's going to hit every city in every village, this is an exhaustive tour. All right. Are you ready for your peas? Point four. A pair of present participles. You've got them right there. Proclaiming and preaching. Proclaiming and preaching. A pair of present participles portrays the precise promulgation practiced in this pricey peregrination. Ethel missed it. We, we, we learned the word peregrination. In fact, I think it was before Casey got here also. The term peregrination is a walkabout. Walking here and there and turning this way and that way. That's what Jesus is doing. Thoroughly covering Galilee. We've got a pair of present participles we need to examine here. What is he doing? Preaching. Proclaiming and preaching. Proclaiming and preaching. And are we called to do the same thing? Yes, we are. Say, well, I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. Get out of the the 21st century American vocabulary where, you know, you've got preachers and, and and. yeah, laity or audience and, and so forth. That, you know, preachers, that's what the pastor does. He's a preacher. I show up to hear the preaching. Oh, you also are a preacher. You also are a uh, proclaimer, a herald. We'll give you the vocabulary on this here in a moment. But it's a pair of present participles. A present participle, unlike an heiress participle, a present participle describes the attendant circumstances, the activity that takes place while and throughout the main verb is being exercised. Main verb here is diaduo. Main verb here is traveled throughout. So the main verb is he began going around. And I guess that's okay, going around from one city and village to another. The main verb is going around. But going around isn't really doing anything, is it? It's just going around. I can go to Walmart. I can go to Target. I can go to family Christian store, I can go to uh, a whole bunch of places, and have I really accomplished anything? Sometimes I wonder. (laughs) I've gone around, burned up a lot of gas. Have I really accomplished anything? Well, the main verb here is going around, but the the, uh, emphasis is on these two participles. Well, what was he doing while he was going around? Proclaiming and preaching. Proclaiming and preaching. Proclaiming and preaching. See, part of this, too, uh, comes into play when we consider what our own great commission is to make disciples. How do we make disciples? Teaching and baptizing. All right. So it's another context where you've got a primary verb and participles that show you the attendant circumstances. All right. Got that written down yet? Word for word? Really? All right. A pair of present participles portrays the precise promulgation that is what he's accomplishing, his activity, practiced in this pricey peregrination. All right, first of all, Caruso. Caruso. You know, even if you're not a Greek student, if, you've, if you're just a, a churchgoer sitting in the pew, you ought to at least have, I think at a minimum, probably two dozen. 24 Greek words, 
24 Greek words that every believer needs to know. doesn't matter if you're a pastor, a Greek student, anything. You ought to know at least 24 Greek words. And you probably do. If you've been in Bible class long enough, you've picked up things. You know charis is grace. And you can certainly embrace the charis grace. You probably learn about agape love. How important the agape integrity, unconditional love is. And maybe several others. Keruso ought to be one of them. Keruso ought to be one of them because this is our responsibility. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are the herald, as it were. Keruso, K-E-R-U-S-S-O, number 2784, to make an official announcement, to announce, to make known, or to be an official herald. See, back before they could just send out an email, they sent heralds into the town. Uh, they'd stand in the, in the town square and they would cry out, Oh, hear ye, hear ye. You know, they'd have a proclamation to read. And you'd pay attention. Not because the herald was important. He was just a messenger. But the message he was delivering was very important. It was coming from the king. It was coming from the Lord or wherever it was coming from. And so you paid attention, not because of who the messenger was, but because of who was uh, making the announcement. And we are all called to do this. Not just the Lord here in, verse, in chapter 8, but in chapter 9, he's going to send his disciples out to do this. Under the Great Commission, all church-age saints are expected to do this. We're heralds. We're ambassadors. As ambassadors, we are making announcements of good news, and we're also making the entreaty to, uh, to be reconciled. Looked at that last Sunday night. So in Luke 9, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim to Caruso the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, we don't have that part, but we are sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Acts 20.25. 20, That's the third time to be in Acts 20 this morning. Acts 20.25. 20, he says... Uh, Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. He says, that's okay, I don't mind. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the things of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know what all of you, among whom, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom. That's Caruso. Preaching, proclaiming the kingdom will no longer see my face. Acting as a herald, proclaiming. We all have a proclamation to make. We can think of ourselves as heralds. And then finally, 2831, last chapter of Acts. I wanted you to see, though, in these last references here in Acts, that proclaiming the kingdom of God is not limited to the dispensation of Israel. That the church has a kingdom proclamation to make. Not that we're bringing it in through human effort, but we are telling individuals how they may enter that heavenly kingdom. All right, Romans, not Romans, Acts 28.31. Verse 30 says, He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. While he's awaiting trial, he had visitation privileges. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. 
All right, that's Caruso, to be a herald. Not limited to clergy, not limited to just pastors that are preachers. We're all called to preach. We're all called to proclaim, to herald. We should be shouting it on the rooftop since we have freedom in our country to do so. There are other countries around the world that don't have that freedom. I understand why those people ought to be careful in what they do. They, they need to be. They need to be shrewd as serpents. They need to be, have the utmost discretion. And they're going to be underground. And they're going to be covert in the things they do. I find it pathetic how many Americans are covert in the things they do. Undercover Christians don't want anybody to know they're Christians. See, and we have this land of freedom where we can proclaim the gospel. The second participle is euangelizo. This ought to be another one of your 24 Greek words. Euangelizo, to bring good news, to announce good news. An angelos is a messenger. Angelizo is to announce. The prefix you means that it's, uh, it's good or it's well. So you're announcing something happy. We tend to think of different announcements, and some of them are happy, and some of them we think are not. We say, I've got good news and bad news. Is there, any such, is there such thing as bad news, if all things work together for good? <laughs> well, it's bad news for the moment. It will work together for good, and that's the good news, but for the moment... We've got some bad news from our human perspective. Euangelizo is to bring good news. So we're not only proclaiming as a herald the message of a coming king, but it's a good news message. The word evangelize is not even a translation. It's a transliteration of this verb. E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-Z-O. Quite often the upsilon, the U, becomes a V because of uh, the, the Latin step in between Greek and English. So we have E-V for evangelize instead of E-U, euangelize. And I guess that's kind of nice. I wouldn't want to be a euangelist. You could be an evangelist. What's that? Euangelizo. Euangelizo. Yep, euangelizo. And the E-U... The EU, let me switch to this. Showing up okay? There we go. This is an EU, but because of the uh, influence of Latin, oftentimes it comes across as an EV. A, then you got two G's. When you have the two G's together, you make the first one an N. Because it's hard to say guga. It's easier to say ng. E L I Z. And of course, the verb ends with an O in Greek, but you can see how it comes across as evangelize as an English verb. Evangelize. What is evangelize? It's not an English word, it's a loan word from the Greek. It means to bring good news. To bring good news. So that's how the upsilon becomes a V. If you're evangelizing, you're bringing good news. If you're bringing good news related to eternal life, then you are evangelizing with a gospel information. There are other evangelizings beyond gospel information and soteriological emphasis.
I'm sorry? In Luke 9-2, let me see. No, uh, Luke, okay, yeah, Luke 9-2 is a use of Caruso, correct. And it is, he sent them out to proclaim, that's Caruso. He sent them out to Caruso, the kingdom of God, and to perform healing. That's Caruso there. Yeah, there's no euangelizo in, in Luke 9. Yeah, the, the verses where we have both are in Luke 8. Luke 8 and verse 1. Soon afterward, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming, that's kerusoing, and preaching, euangelizoing. So he went out from one city and village to another, keruso, proclaiming, and euangelizo, bringing good news, the kingdom of God. So these were the two participles. Now, the proclamation and the good news were about the kingdom of God, which I'll give to you under subpoint C, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Again, nothing unusual about the vocabulary. Basileon is a standard term for kingdom. Basileus is a king. Uh, Basileon to Theu. Theos for God. That's, that ought to be one of your... 24 Greek words, theos. Tain basileon to theu, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. You know, when we evangelize, often it's a negative witness. What do I mean by that? Negative witness. You want to accept the gospel. You want to be saved. Why? So that you don't go to hell. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, see, that's a negative witness. That's proclaiming a message based on what they don't want. But a positive witness, kingdom of God, eternal life. Not just that you're saved and you have eternal life. Well, what am I doing with my eternal life? Where do I go when I die? What happens after this life? Kingdom of God. In fact, a kingdom you enter into, you function in even now. You don't have to wait for your physical death. Because even now you possess eternal life. Even now you're a part of the kingdom. Even now you are the the virgin bride espoused to the coming king. So the kingdom of heaven, which is presently not of this world, is on its way coming to this world. And we're a part of that kingdom right here, right now. This is the the common theme. It's the common theme throughout the the message of the baptizer, the message of Christ, the message of his disciples, and even the message of the church age. We already saw those applications in the book of Acts. So this is what his message is about, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Now keep in mind, he's ministering to a lot of people whose focus is on Rome, whose focus is on getting rid of Rome being under occupation, and they hate it. Of course, who would like it? Who would like being occupied by a foreign military power? And they've been under Gentile dominion at this point for over 500, almost 600 years. Temple being destroyed in 585 or 586 B.C. So roughly 600 years now, they've been under Gentile dominion. Babylonians, 
Persians, Greeks, and now Romans. See, if you're part of our Daniel series, you understand what this pattern is with these, with these Gentile empires. And they have an understanding of this. Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, they've got their four empires. They're waiting now for what? For Rome to be done with. Say, for the coming king, for the coming kingdom. So this is very much good news. However, he's also telling them something else. They must be born again. That it's not just an external political deliverance. But there is an internal spiritual salvation that each individual must achieve or they're not entering the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't matter how Jewish they are. They can be racially Jewish if they're unregenerate. They're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's part, that part uh, did not go over well among the unregenerate, among the brood of vipers. A lot of the, uh, uh, the, the zealots were, were very eager to throw off Rome. They, they engaged in guerrilla warfare tactics. They were very uh, excited about uh, a political change of thing and, and, uh, and so forth. They found out that he could produce food on command. And what a great king. Let's make him king. But actually listening to his words, believing the scriptures. The uh, men love darkness rather than light for their deeds are evil. Yeah, give me that political freedom, but don't bother me with that spiritual life stuff. See. All right, we will pick up on this theme next week, but let's just get a uh, reminder here with these. Matthew 4. And this had been the message of the Baptist as well, which we see in chapter 3 and verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 4, Jesus himself follows up on that same ministry. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, that's Caruso, and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Baptist had a kingdom of heaven ministry. Jesus Christ had a kingdom of heaven ministry. They were proclaiming it. They were announcing it. It was at hand. It had the potential of occupying the earth. Of course, it didn't happen. We know why. They rejected and crucified the Christ. He ascended to be with his father. And we've had the last 2,000 years now of church age. But verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that's proclaiming, K. Russo, the gospel, euangelizon, or euangelion, Gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. See, it's on these kind of touring ministries that he's proclaiming the kingdom and he's casting out demons and he's healing people. Why is he healing people? To demonstrate his divine credentials. That they better listen to what he's saying. And fortunately, in some of these early traveling ministries... He healed a whole lot of people, some of whom listened to what he had to say, including a number of these prominent women that are now, by the time we get to the Luke 8 tours, they're now on board. They're now involved in the ministry. They're now traveling in a logistical support function because they listened in some of the earlier tours. And now they're on board in these later tours. But it's all oriented towards the kingdom 
All right, there's more there in Mark 1 and Luke 4, but I'm out of time. Do we have any questions? Anything before I close in prayer? We had a good start on it. We got through point four, but we got five, six, and seven that we'll deal with next week. This should be a short episode. It's only three verses, not a lot there to it. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. I pray that we would be challenged in our own responsibility as heralds and evangels, Father, that we are those that are called to proclaim. We are those to bring good news. Father, how will they believe unless... Uh, unless they hear. And how, uh, how will that message be proclaimed unless they're sent? And Father, we're the ones you've sent. We're the ones that must proclaim. And I thank you for that conviction. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.